Welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Happy New Year. Goodbye 2020. Hello 2021. This is Joshua Taylor, the BFG from Ottawa, Canada. And with me is my brother across the pond in literature. <laughs> in literature? Is that, is that a country? <laughs> in, in, in literature, yes. It's a country. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I get it. Yeah. It, was the, it was a Shatnerian pause in your sentence that made me shake my head a bit. But yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, here is my cousin <laughs> across the pond, my brother in literature. <laughs> literature Scotland. Exactly. Say your name, man. Say who you are, because I totally cut you off there. No, it doesn't matter. I think we did that. Scott Powell, otherwise known as Bowman. Yeah, so we're back for another uh, round of Lighting the Pipes. Uh, I guess we're still technically on the second season. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Because we, we are covering uh, Raymond Chandler's uh, Detective Philip Marlowe. We've been doing the first five novels so far. And we're about to move on to the biggest novel of the series, The Long Goodbye. But before we do that, uh, we thought we'd have a little bit of an interlude. And we're going to dive into The Confidential Agent by Graham Greene in this episode. We are, yeah. And I'm really looking forward to this chat, Josh. Um, the teachers that I work with, we got a little book club going on, a faculty book club. And, you know, every month or so we get together um, in school when we could, but virtually when we can't. And we talk about a different book. And uh, one of the teachers I work with, she had this book kicking around her house and hadn't read it. Um, and so decided, well, book club is a good excuse, you know, to share the experience of a book I don't know much about with uh, with others. So this is the book that, yeah, that uh, my colleague selected for this, this year's round of book talks. And because it fits so nicely in with, you know, with the parameters of our show, I decided to, to get an extra copy, send it across the pond to yourself. And Thank you. Yeah, you're most welcome. And uh, it fits nicely, I think, with kind of what we're doing in terms of the spy crime bend for this season, at least. And, I, I, agree. Yeah. I agree. Good choice in that respect. And as mm. I said, a little bit of a respite from uh, Philip Marlowe as we prepare for the final two books of Raymond Chandler's, I guess, series yeah. uh, about the Philip Marlowe. You can kind of call it a series, really, because it's not... I mean, you, I guess you could say they're episodic in, in their own way, but they mm -hmm. seem all connected in some way with references to previous books here and there. Yeah. But yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Like a serial is maybe a more is not probably it's probably not a greater word for it to, to describe the Marlowe. I just like a series of adventures, kind of like in, in the Sherlock Holmes vein, I guess you could mm -hmm. say. Well, there's, there's not as much world building in it as there might be some other series of books or, or shows, but uh, there is, there is some world building in it in terms of I, continued characters and things like that. Yeah, I would say there definitely is a, a, a continuity that, that's that's expressed throughout the novels. Mm -hmm. I would say it's definitely there. It and, can be argued about how vague and how how deep it is, but yeah. I, I think it's still there 100%. And I wonder, Josh, did you pick up on any uh, Chandlerian or Marlowian moments in this story? Because one really stuck out to me, and I'm wondering if you picked up on it. Um, I was just, well, just in the, in the sense where there was a sense of chivalry to D and mm -hmm. whatnot. Um I don't see a man like Green, from what I know about him, trying to evoke, you know, Chandler in his writings. I don't even know if he read Chandler. It's it's hard to say. Well, he, but, he was but, kind of yeah. I mean, he, this this book predated the Chandler stories, didn't it? Yeah, just not well, by I much mean, though, not by much, because the Big Sleep was the same year or the year after, right? But you guys understand is that even even because Chandler didn't start writing until Black Mask in, in 1934, whereas Graham Greene was like I believe it was 32 he published. Uh, Stambul train mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and and that was like considered like his first I guess like adventure or entertainment thriller story mm -hmm. that he wrote it was, so yeah. so he was already into the genre already he, he already had like the time 
Chandler had the big sleep out. He already had like, you know, Hollywood adaptations of his books made so far. So, well, what I'm thinking about is something a lot more specific than like a trend or like a character feature. What I'm thinking about is a name in the last book that we read and reviewed in the Chandler series, The Little Sister, there's a character, you remember the actor? Oh, Fortescue. <laughs> Fortescue, yeah. I yeah. Thought, yeah. Fortescue, yeah. <laughs> the the uh, lofter above Mrs. Gl- uh, Glover, yeah. Glover, yeah, absolutely. I yeah, thought, I, I thought it was of, cool. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's, that's a good shout out for sure. I'm sure we'll find other, uh, inter- uh, you know, connections to Chandler and the mystery genre as yeah, we yeah. and the thriller genre in general as we sift through the confidential agents. <clears throat> yeah, we will, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, it, it was a book club. Uh, selection, which we're turning into an episode to share with our listeners and a review, because I think there is a lot of interesting chat to be had with this book. Um, Graham Greene has said himself that it's one of the few books that he decided to go back and reread, because when he wrote it, it didn't really feel like he was himself. And I know you're going to share a little bit of that when you get into your brief bio about it. But uh, for those of you just joining the show, Lighting the Pipes, um, we take a look at fiction, but we're taking a look at crime fiction, specifically just now, crime and spy fiction starting with our series last couple of years on the Sherlock Holmes canon now we're looking as Josh said at the Philip Marlowe character by Raymond Chandler with a few little interludes here and there to look at film television and kind of just offshooting stories now after we're finished the the Marlowe stuff we might go on and do uh, a completely different genre a completely different deep dive but we got some ideas we got some things that are brewing for season three and we'll share those once we're closer to the end of our Marlowe adventure Yes, stay tuned. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Darn coffee. Well, Josh, I've got a summary lined up, uh, which I pre-recorded earlier uh, this week. You sure do. And you've got a little bit of information on Green. Um, it might also be worth saying to those of you just tuning in for the first time that one of the things we like to do is a bit of context, a bit of bio about the authors uh, before we get into the story itself. And the PIPES acronym, which we'll get to shortly when we review the text, is yes. P for principles, I for investigation, P for perpetrators, E for environs, and S for secondary players or secondary characters that feature in the story. And that, right. ac- that acronym uh, has been with us since the start of the show, way back to when we lit the pipes over the Sherlock Holmes stories. So I that's wonder what, where we got that acronym use. from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works pretty good in terms of like, you know, dissecting mystery novels in particular. Mm-hmm. But will it fit this particular novel? That's the question. Well, why don't we get into what Graham Greene was trying to do? Tell us a little bit about him, buddy. Yeah, so Graham Greene, or Henry Graham Greene, he was born October 2nd, 1904, in Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire, England, uh, to a sprawling, influential family in the area. Uh, his father was the headmaster of Berkhamsted uh, School, where actually where where Greene was actually born as well. Uh, the family coffers, they overflowed with profits of the Green King Brewery. Mm-hmm. Now, today, the Green King Brewery is Britain's biggest brewer and public house retailer. That's right. They yeah. have beers such as Bellhaven, Ridley's, Trader Jones, Moreland, Hardee's, Hanson's, just to name a few. Now, here's the thing. I've been to the UK. I don't know how prevalent Green King is maybe in Scotland. It might mm-hmm. be maybe some – maybe they more focus on, you know, like more uh, in the south – more so than they do up north, but 
Have you ever had a Green King beer? Yes, I certainly have. And uh, you've had a Bellhaven Best as well. That's a Scottish. I did. That is Bellhaven, a Scottish. That, yeah. That's why that name, that's why that name. <laughs> that's ring, right. Ring yeah. to, and I just realized I have a coaster, I think, from someone who went to the Orkney Islands and he, gave, and he, and he got that coaster <laughs> with Bellhaven on it. Now, Josh, if I'm correct, the the Green family, there's kind of like two lines that were there. If what I understand is correct, they were a sprawling family. Yeah, they were so a sprawling to... family. There was like the there was the the, the really rich uh, brewery family, the brewer family side, and then there's yes. like the academic greens of which Graham Green was a part. Berkhamstead, Berkhamstead, sorry, the, the Berkhamstead greens. Yeah, absolutely. They are because, related, but it's very big. Yeah, because Green King uh, Brewery was at Barry St. Edmunds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the, their, that's where their their business was uh, founded. Yeah, I mean it's a numbers game, really. I think if you hang yeah. around long enough, and a lot of our listeners in the UK will uh, will know the Green King label and brands quite well. They even uh, on his 80th birthday for Graham Green, they actually like commemorated a special beer for him or something <laughs> like that. Cool. Yeah. That's when you know you've arrived, hey? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You got your that's own beer. You, that's when you know you have arrived, indeed. Uh, right. So we talked about this influence with the with the brewery and of course Berkhamstead School, and we that Green also attended the Berkhamstead School in Herefordshire as well. Um, Despite the fact, you know, as I said, his father was a teacher and eventually he was headmaster of the school. Green was not happy there. Uh, He was severely bullied and his only solace was his own writing and interest in romances and morality. Hmm. Uh, This melancholy persisted to the point that he attempted suicide a few times. Psychotherapy followed and was enough to get him through his late adolescence and into Balliol College at Oxford. Mm-hmm. where he took up the study of history, but the literary ambitions he had begun at Berkhamstead soon replaced his chosen discipline. Unfortunately, depression, a result of, of a bipolar disorder, which they would diagnose today, most likely, uh, would be a constant factor in the rest of his life. Yeah, these early days were were, were not pleasant for him. Um, now, there's a, there's a lot of apocryphal tale that comes out, and I say it's apocryphal. They're roulette. Um, yeah, the, the Russian roulette, yeah, with his uh, brother's pistol. Can you say anything about that? All I know from from that, and uh, I was interesting because the the what was the name of the author that you gave me information on? The John Sutherland, what, yeah, the lives of novelists. The Dutton novelists, yeah, that was it's a great succinct kind of breakdown of his life. I guess every every page is like that, hey, like where they just take all mm-hmm. every chapter, mm-hmm. every section. Yeah. That's really cool. That's something to pick up. It's, it's a wonderful it's, text, yeah. Yeah, it uh, gives you the. It reminds me of a book that I have on, uh, on the uh, on on the. Uh, Plantagenet kings, and mm-hmm. they have very succinct little small sections for each of the kings, and they break things down in a way that gives you all the information on them and all the juicy tidbits. But they're still written in a kind of very um, enticing, exciting way. Mm-hmm. So, because it, it gives you the facts right away, it doesn't doesn't go over too much over analysis of them. It's a really great like um, survey. How can I put it survey of, of each of the kings, and mm-hmm. and that's what that's kind of reminded me of a little bit. So, I, I like I like very helpful books that are published like that, especially mm-hmm. when they're made like a long time ago too. Like, like for example, we talked about before about Ian Fleming had a couple of books like that, if I'm not mistaken. That's or no, right, there, yeah. was a, there, was an, there was an author who broke down his stuff. I forget who it was now. That was... Um, oh, was Kings, that King? Kingsley Amos, yeah. Kingsley Amos, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's right. And speaking, bon of Fleming, dossier. speaking of Fleming, there is definitely some similarities here uh, in mm-hmm. regard to for sure. Fleming with Graham Greene. So basically his condition... Uh, was something that would you know that he would deal with for the, with his whole life, and uh, it probably caused a lot of antagonism and a lot of reasons for his behavior and things that he said and things that he did, I guess, throughout his life as well. Green was, of course, he was a writer, and like many American English writers of the 20th century, he was also a journalist. Think of our you know think think of our boys uh, Fleming, think of uh, Hemingway, 
right? Uh, it's a profession he took up after college, which saw him to become editor of the Times by at the pinnacle of his career. His starting point was, a pub, was the publication of his own book of poetry called Babbling April in 1925, but it was not yet his moment. Now, Green is known for a Catholic perception in his writings, uh, where he used this, this, that somewhat myopic lens to examine morality and politics of the 20th century. The Wikipedia article describes that he was not fond of being a Catholic novelist as he saw himself as a writer who also was Catholic. Mm -hmm. A conversion he made in 1926 willingly when courting Vivian Dayrell Browning, that was basically when he became a Catholic, per se. Vivian Dayrell Browning, who was to become his wife, she recently converted to Roman Catholicism and, and, and a chance meet cute at a bookshop resulted in his conversion and marriage to her in 1927. The couple would have two children, uh, Lucy and Francis, but the union did not end well. Graham would write over 25 novels, being shortlisted on the Nobel Prize for Literature as well. And his first novel, The Man with Thin, was published in 1929. And it's more than modest success, that's 13,000 in hardback actually, allowed him to pursue a career as a novelist. A contract with Heinemann Publishers ensured this, it was a trilogy of historical romances, uh, The Man Within. And so think of his fascination with the Song of Roland. Uh, mm -hmm. in the, uh, Well, think of Dee's fascination with the Song of Roland in The Confidential Agent, and you'll get an idea of what these kind of stories entailed. Uh, he had his Catholic novels, such as Brighton Rock, The Power and the Glory, The Heart of the Matter, and The End of the Affair. Uh, they deal with Catholic themes. He also wrote what he called entertainments. These are his thrillers we were talking about. Political intrigue and espionage were his focus in that part of his oeuvre. The confidential agent being among them, but as well as our man in Havana and the quiet American. And of course, uh, he would write the screenplay for uh, The Third Man. Mm -hmm. His foray into the thrillers was his fourth novel, Istanbul Train, published in 1930. Sorry, his fourth book, I should say, not fourth novel, his fourth book. Uh, Stamble Train was published in 1932 and was a spy story set on the Orient Express. Uh, evocative Ian Fleming's Remush with Love. This wouldn't be the only similar path he would share with Fleming. Walsh's career as a novelist gained traction. He wrote film reviews for The Spectator as well as assist in the editing of the magazine Night and Day. One critique he made for the same magazine in 1937 on the Shirley Temple film Wee Willie Winkie implied the film was outright objectifying its child star. Though a couple of his books had already been adapted to film, Green would have a contentious relationship with Hollywood, especially with 20th Century Fox, the producer of Wee Willie Winkie, who sued him for libel successfully. Mm -hmm. Still, well, his, com his comments, if I understand, Josh, his comments were, you know, were quite on the nose, right? They, they, they were. And this is, a, as I said, this is a man who, you know, he believed himself now as a Catholic with this morality that he had to say what I think, you know, say what needed to be said and, you know, and follow that strict that, you know, that doctrine in his own way and to be outspoken about it. Right. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of the talk against him, because we only have diaries to make up who he was as a person and sure. other ca accounts of other people. But he also pissed off a lot of people, too. So you're going to have bad accounts of him. So it's hard to paint a picture of Graham Greene in, in most cases. Uh, can you think of a writer, a successful writer or artist that hasn't pissed off a lot of people on their way up? You know, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's look, hard, isn't look, it? It is absolutely hard. Look at Hemingway. I mean, I mean Fleming. I mean, he's that whole fallout with McClory and all that sort of stuff, right? So, I mean, do you know what? Uh, and I think I think it's it's a terrible indictment on and, that. And, and, on men. and Chandler and Chandler too. Like you know, just just uh, his whole situation with Dabney Oil and then with with um, Billy Wilder and mm -hmm. you talk mm -hmm. about, for example. 
other enemies he made in Hollywood as well. So anyway, sorry, carry on my friend. Yeah, no problem. Still, uh, even though he was sued for libel, he would later write the screenplay, as I mentioned, to Carol Reed's noir classic, The Third Man. During the trial with Fox, Green left the UK and lived in Mexico. Here he brought his journalistic and literary skills together and wrote The Power and Glory, which definitely falls under the category of Catholic novel. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps a response to the lack of morality of his, or, or his own reinforcement of it that had resulted in his legal trouble with Fox. But it wasn't just Hollywood that Green had incensed, as in the pages of The Power and Glory, he sullied the reputation of the Catholic priesthood. Who would dare? Who would dare, yeah. You know, as I said, he has this shoot-from-the-hip way of speaking and calling institutions out for moral shortcomings. Uh, this created enemies for him. He would even go after his literary contemporaries, such as uh, Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster. Uh, not just in terms of, you know, moral-wise, but just in, uh, in terms of morality, but also in terms of he just didn't think they were good writers. Uh, now, at the, risk, at the risk of psychoanalyzing, do you see that maybe... Maybe there was a bit of the insecurity there as being a victim of bullying, you know, that he always had to try to, from the safety of his own typewriter, take people down, you know, who who otherwise would be celebrated or people who he thought were actually good. He had to fire some shots across their hulls to, to make himself feel better. Is there anything in that or am I or am I just stretching? No, he was a complicated person, that's for sure. And the bullying and plus the bipolar disorder and all that kind of stuff plays many factors. I didn't to help the fact that he was also very hypocritical, but we'll get mm -hmm. into that. Mm -hmm. uh, given his moral convictions and his own hypocrisies in regard to his infidelity, as well as being called by some as a sexual deviant or even worse, Graham Greene is somewhat of an enigma, uh, and it's hard to place a composite sketch of him as an individual. He's an uh, interesting figure. Yeah, so basically his writing was celebrated by many and not by others. You know, and despite his marriage and his and his personal life were kind of becoming of a shambles, despite, you know, how well he was doing in his writing. Uh, his journalistic aspirations, his pursuits to, uh, gave him the opportunity to become a well-traveled man, taking him to places like Liberia, Spain, uh, and as we mentioned, Mexico. This would be a great boon to a man who writes thrillers for a living, certainly. Green published The Confidential Agent in 1939. He wrote it in six weeks. According to his own introduction, he rented a flat in Bloomsbury so that he could escape the distractions of domestic life and carry on an affair with the landlady's daughter, no less, whilst being compelled to his writing through doses of Benazedrine. As he wrote it in six weeks on as Bender, essentially. He stated that he wrote the book to get paid and wanted to be published under a different name as he was not happy with the story at all. As you said, it took a second view of the reading of the book to kind of make himself mm -hmm. more co comfortable with what he wrote and, I guess, embrace it. Uh, can, I, can I just interrupt you for a quick second, buddy? Sure. Um, was it not Benzedrine that... I remember I, I gave you a book years ago I sent to you, Aldous Huxley. I, I thought that you, was LSD. I thought it was Benzedrine. Have you got it there, Handy? Uh, Beyond the Doors of Perception. Have you got that on your bookshelf there? I have to go up and get it. No, I forget it. Doesn't so, matter. So, so that's the answer. I guess the answer is no. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Benzedrine, I thought, is what he had. Or was it mescaline? Maybe he, maybe he was on mescaline. Yeah. Anyway, regardless, I'm sorry. All we, all we got to do, simply, there's a quick way to do that. I know, I know. I just thought that we could retrieve the knowledge from our own brains, man. That's all. But, hey. I'm pretty I sure he was lysergic athlete demethylide. That's what I thought that he was on. Okay. Well, it's fine. I thought it was mescaline or benzedrine, but it really doesn't matter, and it's not good listening anyway. <laughs> but uh, despite you know his feelings about the book initially, the literary world did not agree with his assessment. Uh, on the publication of the book, the New York Times referred to the confidential agent as a tour de force, uh, hmm, a rather wow. 
I'd rather have a cliche, I guess, in terms of uh, of a book review blurb, I guess you could say. I mean, how many movie reviews and book blurbs do you see? A tour de force on the front mm-hmm, of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, does that even, what does that even mean anymore? Uh, Green said that with a confidential agent, he wanted to create something legendary out of a contemporary thriller. Flourishes like like, like uh, with uh, literary references and, like, for example, the Chanson de Roland indicate that he wanted to enable the literary possibilities of the thriller genre, much like our friend Chandler, mm-hmm. uh, a genre that he himself would be caught up in the outbreak of World War II. His extensive travels uh, made uh, during the 30s made him an easy recruit for MI6 with the help of his sister Elizabeth. Uh, he served as an MI6 agent in Sierra Leone during the war and under one man named Kim Philby. Now, this man would later be revealed as one of the mm-hmm. Cambridge Four, the Soviet double agents. That's right. He was a double the agent. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever, if anyone watched, like for example, uh, Netflix is the Crown. I believe in the second season, or no, the third season, I believe it is. They they deal with the uh, the Cambridge Four being exposed. Hmm. I wonder if Philby had any anything to do with Camp X. Ah, it's possible. That's yeah. that's that makes you wonder. Because I know that happened before Fleming died. I was wondering what Ian Fleming would have thought about that too. Because mm-hmm. he probably knew. Um, For sure, Philby. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, Kim Philby is, is not the only notorious individual that Graham Greene kind of had a uh, acquaintance with. Post World War II, Greene had an affair with Catherine Walston uh, or Lady Walston, but Vivian, a staunch Catholic, would not grant him the divorce, though they separated. Green himself considered an, uh, himself a Catholic agnostic at this point. According to an article by Joseph Pierce, uh, Graham Greene, uh, doubter par excellence from CatholicAuthors.com, Graham's gripe with religion was the if surrounding God's existence. He found, however, that after a few weeks of serious argument, the if was becoming less and less improbable. Hmm. Even in his thrillers, there is a deliberate edge of the philosophic. The confidential agent is no exception. He had resigned from MI6 at the time and continued with his novels and journalistic work. The two professions blended well together with his travels before and after the Second World War. Green would find himself in Haiti for inspiration uh, and Cuba in 1957, where he actually met Fidel Castro, who gave him a painting, a Castro original, actually, uh, which Green hung on the wall of his house in Vives, Switzerland. Green was fascinated with totalitarian figures like Castro and Francois Duvalier, the Papa Doc of Haiti. He was also growingly openly critical. He was he was also growing, uh, and very he was also very he was also openly critical of what he saw as American imperialism and sympathized with left wing dictators like Castro. It is important to note that the country which D, the protagonist of the confidential agent, has come, is without a doubt an unnamed Spain, mm-hmm. been under the struggle of the Spanish Civil War, the country torn apart by uh, the landowning fascists of Franco and the Republican. Uh, government-controlled, very left-wing communist government. Uh, The complex, outspoken, prolific, intensely inscrutable, and enigmatic author of the 20th century passed away of leukemia in 1991. How many books in total, buddy? What did you say? 25 novels? 20, 25 books, yes. Mm -hmm. Novels included, as well as poetry and other works and essays. Very nice. uh, yeah, that's my summary mm-hmm. of uh, the life of uh, Graham Greene. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that, of course. I think of course, a, yeah. a, I, I think a bio, of, like a full biography on him, would be very interesting to read, um, especially all the people that he knew and met and whatnot. So I just want to give you a flavor, I guess, of what he was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, I, I'm interested, having read this book, and admittedly, it's the first Graham Greene book I've ever read. I did have 
Um, I did have the power and the glory on a university syllabus, I remember, years and years ago, um, but I never got around to reading that one. And it's just as well, because we never ended up doing it in in class. And you know what it's like when you're reading books for university, like you're just absolutely motoring through them and you're told, okay, right, get this one done for this time or whatever. And I never got around to it and we never got around to discussing it anyway. So I I feel like it's always been a bit of a a skeleton in my closet, if you you think of it that way. no, he's, he's not. not he's, an author that I've, uh, he's, he's an author. You know, I've read some 20th century authors, especially English ones, like E.M. Forster, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's like he's one of those, one of those authors that I heard about, and I just never really sure. got a chance to read him. I remember, you know, for example, the uh, the Ray Fiennes Julianne Moore film, The End of the Affair, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. which I believe was also somewhat autobiographical. The, the novel as well, of course. Uh, yeah. You know, regarding the end of his marriage and everything, like everything like like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, in The Quiet American, that was also a film. So I didn't really know about Graham Greene more so than that. And uh, I would say after reading The Confidential Agent, uh, I, I found his writing very interesting. The Power and the Glory, that's one of the Catholic novels, per se. Uh, and that's considered his masterpiece. And so I'm curious to see what that is like for sure. But I think I also like to try out some of his thrillers as well, like The Quiet American, for example, um, or Istanbul Train, like those sound really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, no, for sure they do. And, and the honorary consul, like just those particular titles, they kind of intrigue me. Just to just to correct myself a little bit, he does have a collection of short stories. Uh, there's like collecting stories, the last word and other stories. May we borrow your husband? Journey without maps is one. I, I, I think that one was referred to in the biographies mm-hmm. yeah, that, yeah. That, I, that I read as well. The lawless roads in search of character. I just didn't know particularly which publications were the short stories or not. So he has. So he, even though he is, as you said, a novelist, novelist, uh, he uh, did do short stories as well. Um, I think that yeah. you know all novelists kind of start out that way or have done them in, in a way because because it gets mm-hmm. them writing again. You know what I mean? That's true. Absolutely right. Yeah. It's really interesting to me, you know, thinking about him and his career in writing. Um, having not read anything by him, we're we're clearly reading something of the thriller writer Graham Greene. And I'd be really interested, knowing a bit of his style now, even if it was an early 39 novel, I'd be interested to read something from the, the so-called Catholic novels to see how it compares. And I'm definitely yes. going to do that. Um, I'm definitely going to put one of those on my list. So maybe listeners, you can recommend a, one of the Graham Greene stories for me. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd happily take on those recommendations because um, I wouldn't really know where to start uh, with the Catholic Catholic stuff. Like yourself, Josh, I'm, I'm pretty well suited and well versed to reading the the detective, you know, the spy, the thriller side of things. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, in the other stuff, too. So let us know what uh, what if, if, if you're if you're a Graham Greene reader, reader, let us know what uh, what would be the good Catholic one to start with. Or finish with, for that matter. Or finish with. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good work, buddy. So uh, before we light the pipes, shall we share a little summary on the plot itself and what The Confidential Agent's all about? Yes, uh, I was very impressed that you were able to condense this very dense novel. Uh, I mean, the plot is very straightforward in its Mm -hmm. own way, but there's lots of twists and turns. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, he did the screenplay for Carol Reads the Third Man. Yeah. And I can definitely see his skill as a as a novel as a uh, mystery as a thriller writer definitely in play here. There's there's almost like I just want to point out in this. I guess it's a good introduction I think to your summary as well. It kind of reminded me of like, well not reminded me, but I can actually see like when I was reading the book, I kept saying to myself, man, this would be a very good like one camera kind of 
uh, one continuous tracking shot kind of movie that you could make out of this book. You think like so? Just, just yeah, something like uh, Alfonso Cuarón's like Children of Men, for example. Like you could, just, I could just picture you know you know like D as the the actor playing D being followed around and, and all the all the stuff that's happening and and just how the the and just how like the individual encounters that he makes and how creates suspense in itself and how Graham's able to create suspense, a Hitchcockian suspense in many sequences. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, there's so a Hitchcockian really, feel to this story for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that you know there's a lot of cinematic uh, fodder in in this particular book for sure. And it was turned into a film, of course, in 1946. Yes, and it's considered to be like uh, it was Charles Boyer uh, in the main role, uh, and it also had uh, just to connect it back to Marlowe. It also had starred uh, Lauren Bacall, uh, and apparently it was a it was a, a film that uh, critically she did not recover from mm. for quite a bit. I heard interesting. But uh, let's see what the story is all about first. Yeah, uh, let's because dive yeah. into your summary. Because uh, her not recovering from it might have something to do with the way the female character is written. But we'll uh, we'll hold those hands and we'll play them when we're when we're done here. So yeah, here's Indeed. a little summary. If uh, if you know the story well and uh, you don't really fancy listening to a summary of it, then just you know skip ahead 15 minutes or so, and uh, yeah, we'll get you back on the other side. Agent D from an unnamed European country moves inconspicuously through a crowd on a passenger ferry set to dock on England's southeast coast. D has been sent to England to secure resources in coal to help support his government's war efforts. The war in question isn't stated explicitly, but it isn't hard for readers to ascertain the conflict of being the Spanish Civil War thinly veiled in Green's thriller. D represents the left-leaning Republic government who have been embroiled for two years now in conflict with an aristocratic land-owning rebellion that's motivated to destroy the Republic and reclaim its privilege. Though D operates alone on the ferry, he's not without company. His antagonist counterpart, L, is also on board. L represents the rebellion, and both agents have the same target and goal, to convince wealthy industrialist Lord Bendich to reopen his Midland collieries and send the fuel to support their cause. Before the war, Dee was a university lecturer and a scholar in medieval Romance languages. Green wastes little time in sharing fragments of Dee's great loss and trauma caused by the war. First, his wife was executed in error. And later, he was buried alive under brick and rubble from enemy bombings. A fluent speaker of English, freed by war from dependence, Dee becomes a confidential agent for his government. Though he never uses the word unwilling, it is clear that he has a conflicted relationship with his role as intelligence operative. Nevertheless, we're encouraged by the narrative voice to see Dee's cause as noble and defensive, to protect democracy and individual freedoms. He does not lie to Bendich or anyone else about his government's position, and he refrains from violence as long as he can to achieve his goal of beating L to Bendich and securing a deal. L, on the other hand, deceives those with whom he would work and makes multiple sustained attempts to kill, frame, or implicate D in crimes while in London. It's this chief antagonism within their equal goal of securing resources that motivates the plot. 
This dichotomy speaks in vague terms not only of the Spanish Civil War, but also towards the contemporary growing power struggle between Axis powers and the Allied forces. While waiting for the train to London, Dee encounters Rose, a young woman who he noticed on the ferry. As luck would have it, she's the estranged daughter of Lord Benditch himself, and, impatient of waiting on a cold and foggy night, she offers Dee a ride to London in a hired car. Dee accepts, but the car blows out a tire, and the two are forced into a hotel to wait for a repair. There, Rose enjoys a couple of drinks and begins to revel with guests, one of whom is a Captain Curry, ex-soldier and superintendent of the hotel, who seems to know her father. L is also at the hotel, and offers D £2,000 to betray his orders and allegiance and leave Bendich to him. D refuses, and while in the bathroom moments later, a man tries to rob him, presumably of his official papers of presentation from his government. Seeing Rose engaged in further merriment, Dee decides to travel to London alone in the car, now repaired. He doesn't get far, however, before he's overtaken by L, whose chauffeur assaults him and leaves him by the roadside. Both Rose and Captain Curry are with L in the car. They search his coat and wallet, but do not find his papers, which he had concealed safely in his shoe. Dee hitches a lift to London and following instructions, makes his way to the prearranged safe house run by manageress Marie, selected for her piety of cause and hardness. She is a woman with experience in harboring agents on assignment, it would seem. Dee befriends the young housekeeper there, 14-year-old Els, who works at the inn, but dreams of better things. Moved by her honesty and her innocence, he vows to help Els escape the punitive manageress, he entrusts her with his papers while he heads to rendezvous with his contact in London, Mr. K, who works at the Antranatiano Language Centre, instructing in an invented language. Though study in the language appears legitimate, the centre is a believable, unwitting cover for international agents. Its director, Dr. Bellows, is none the wiser. Back in his room, Dee receives a call from Rose, who asks to meet him wanting to clear the air and apologize for the night before. Though suspicious of a trap by L, he nevertheless trusts her, weighing her importance as a contact with Benditch, with whom he will soon be meeting, and also wanting to believe in her honesty. On his way to meet her, he is lured into a lane by a man posing as a beggar and is shot at. Returning to the spot with Rose a while later, who sees evidence of the shot firsthand, he earns her trust. The two grow closer as he reveals information about his past, including his work and his deceased wife. The next day, Dee carefully makes his way through London to attend his meeting with Lord Benditch. He's careful to safeguard the papers which he retrieved from else earlier. He meets Benditch and his partners, most notable Forbes among them, who we soon learn is in love with Rose. The men agree tacitly to a contract with Dee after they hear his government's agenda, but affirm that they are businessmen and perhaps less interested in the moral figure than the capital one. They also state that they are due to meet with L later. Upon request of his papers, Dee discovers to his amazement that they've been lifted, and the only possible explanation is that Bendich's doorman, who took his coat, is aligned with L and swiped his documents. Crestfallen and unable to secure any deal without identification, Dee leaves the property and meets L going into the building. Acting on Rose's suggestion, 
D agrees that heading to his embassy might offer a chance of confirming his identity and purpose, thus strengthening his offer of a deal with Bendage. However, when they arrive, it becomes evident that D's contact has been removed there, and that this office, if not the embassy itself, is now under the influence of the rebel sympathizers. Instead of having his identity authenticated, D finds himself held at gunpoint and trapped further by L's web. The police are called, who question him about the suicide of a young girl, Elsa, who apparently jumped from the window of the guest house. Dee now realizes that this young girl was murdered with an aim of framing him. He grabs the gun from the secretary, evades pursuit, and eventually breaks into an empty flat where he shaves off his mustache and assumes as much of a new appearance as possible while laying out his plan. It is at this point that D vows an end to his neutral, up to now, benign treatment of the opposition, as though Elsa's murder moved L's grey area spy play across the line and into new, foul, and reprehensible territory. Armed, D returns to the guesthouse to see for himself the environment of Elsa's murder, of Elsa's death, and finds the manageress and Mr. K repainting her room in preparation for the new maid. D spies long enough to confirm his suspicion of Elsa's murder and waits for his opportunity to pursue Mr. K, who will be the easier of the two to break. Aware of being followed, Mr. K heads to the Entrenaciano Language Center, where D confronts him in the lift. The two play a waiting game, Mr. K trying to hide among Dr. Bellow's reception guests, and D just biding his time. He calls Rose and gives her the Mayfair address of the flat. Eventually, D leads Mr. K back to the flat, and the interrogation starts. K admits to working against D, and relays that he'd been superseded after the altercations and police attention that D drew arriving into London. He insists that it was Marie, and not him, who was behind the death, behind the death of, the, of the young girl, of the young housekeeper. D prepares to shoot him in the flat's bathroom, but Rose arrives, which stops the execution. They do return to the bathroom together and find Mr. K dead of shock. So they lay him out and they pose him off to Fortescue, a nosy neighbor from upstairs who comes knocking, as a drunk from a party. It buys them some time, but not very much. D learns that L was successful in signing a contract with Bendich, which all but erases his remaining hope. Rose and D make love in the flat and admit their fondness for each other, knowing that it will not last. She is engaged to Forbes, and he has a mission to complete. Nevertheless, she helps Dee initiate his last efforts. In a final push, Dee decides to travel by train to the mining town of Bendich in the Midlands, soon to be reopened in the hope of convincing the in the hope of convincing the union manager that the coal will be shipped to his country in support of a rebellion war effort with murderous ambitions. He is given a letter by Rose to present to an old woman there, Mrs. Bennett, who used to work as a nanny for the family when Rose was an infant and child. And it does work to some extent, but Mrs. Bennett is dismissive of Dee and pushes him on to the Red Lion Inn, where the miners are gathering as news of the colliers returning to work starts to spread. Now people aren't interested in Dee's proclamations about where the coal is heading, they're just delighted by the prospect of work after so long without it. And then he sees that Bendich's man has beat him to the crowd. Bendich's man, of course, you guessed it, it's L, who's schmoozing with Bates, the mining manager, 
D tries his very best to appeal to the public, going as far as smashing church windows and shouting in the street, but this just encourages the crowd to call for the police. He's recognized as the man wanted in London then, confirmed by L. It's only a matter of time before he's caught. So D runs off, but he gets one final opportunity when a gang of youths hide him away and agree to help destroy the mine with dynamite in exchange for the gun from the embassy, which he still holds. He hides in a garden shed behind Mrs. Bennett's house until dark and the excitement in the village passes over. Then he exits to meet the bus that the boys had prepared for him. Before he can get on board, however, the explosion from the mine knocks him out. He's apprehended by police who return him to London to face the phony charges which have now really piled up and have been raised against him by L and his associates since arriving in the country. D finds peace and comfort in the cell and he wishes to remain there, resigned to his end and pleased to be receiving hot food and warmth. He's unaware of the work being done by Forbes on the outside, who has secured excellent legal representation on his behalf, which eventually leads to the posting of bail. Ironically, the bail fee is £2,000, the same amount as what L offered him to walk away with in the story's early stages. Forbes meets him outside of the court, but he doesn't take him to lodgings. Instead, he takes him to the coast, to a hotel near South Crawl, where he has arranged passage for Dee to leave the country. Dee learns that Forbes has done this as a gesture to Rose, who has asked him to do, quote, his very best for Dee. Forbes does this in spite of knowing that Dee is more desirable to Rose than himself. This strikes Dee and the reader as deeply chivalric and pathetic in equal measure. Forbes spends much of his time crying in the car, and it would probably be an unexpected turn had Rose not, on multiple occasions, planted the idea of Forbes's honesty in our mind throughout the story, and had Green not given us that same impression with the scene at the embassy. Dee learns from Forbes that the explosion in Bendage, though a failure in terms of ruining the mine, did draw enough media attention to scare Lord Bendich and his partners away from the deal with L. A potential scandal of British coal being tied up in a foreign civil war was just too risky to wear, so while not successful himself in securing the resource, Dee did ultimately keep his enemy from securing it. And he's comforted by this thought, realizing that it will probably buy him a bit more time to live when he returns home. Instead of staying in his room until Forbes's men come for him, as instructed, Dee chances his luck and goes for a walk to the hotel's recreation center, where guests have gathered to drink and converse. He's recognized there by none other than Captain Curry, the same man from the inn on his first night who thought him guilty of stealing Rose's car and who was driving with L and that violent chauffeur. Curry detains Dee and calls for the police, but offer him a drink and conversation as he waits to be apprehended. Two men soon arrive and collect Dee, and although he thinks that they're the police, these are actually his accomplices arranged by Forbes to get him out of the country. They swiftly usher him into a car and deliver him to a waiting motorboat that carries him across the waves for an hour in the darkness to meet a freighter flying Dutch flags. On board the freighter, which is sailing safely away from England, Dee goes up onto deck to get some fresh air, and there he is surprised by Rose. She knows that she can never replace his wife, 
but for as long as they do have together, she wants to be with him. And it's here that the story of Graham Greene's confidential agent ends. That was a pretty good rundown of The Confidential Agent. Good job there, Scott. Thanks, buddy. I I think that um, prepared for doing this one, like you say, it was a a bit more straightforward, the plot at least to follow it. And it's kind of like a snow globe story. That's kind of the way I... I, uh, I, That's kind of the way I envision it or articulate it anyway, because all the action is very self-contained and you can follow it and you can see everything going on the map that's going there. And you know, you, you got a city and you've got its environs to play with. You've yeah. got a bit of country train drive and, and that's it. And I feel as though that makes it far more easy to write about. Now, some of these Chandler stories, we really had to struggle with the plot summaries. Yes. Because yeah, it's, yeah. it's those twists and turns and then those like big reveals and stuff. And yeah. There really isn't, there really isn't much of that in, in, ter- in, uh, that are kind of like, you know, outside of like, you can tell that like Chandler is using the mystery novel tropes, so he's obviously doing these big reveals for dramatic, you know, purpose and everything like that. If there is any kind of like surprises or twists in uh, the Confidential Agent, it's very organic to the story and it, yeah, it, it flows sure. well. It's easy to follow. For sure. And, uh, and I think that definitely made it a more effective story in the end. I did tell you that like I was having difficulty with, mm-hmm. you know, with some of the style and stuff, and I think it's because like unlike Chandler and unlike Fleming and and even you know Conan Doyle. I I was able to read that like uh, I was able I was able to read those books you know I, I could I could basically take myself in and out but with this particular story I had to kind of just fully immerse myself into the world. Well, let's get into it then, shall we? Let's light our pipes and we'll get down to work on yeah I mean stripping back this story and uh, and and looking at what's underneath the cover. Did that sound rude? Well, Graham Greene would probably find some (laughs) duality of that for sure. Uh, He probably would. So let's start then with the principal. What did you think of these, uh, of this guy, D? We meet him as he's entering Great Britain or he's entering uh, Dover, right? He's on the, he's on the passenger ferry. He seems me, he seems to me at the very beginning of the story, quite a nervous guy, um, very wrapped up in in his past, and I think yes. that can I think that's consistent. It continues throughout Haunted the story. Haunted by it, yeah. Haunted by his past, uh, and uh, well, I got to get I, it out there at the beginning. One of my one of my concerns with him is that I don't know how effective he is as a spy. You know, I mean, he does some things throughout the story that that you know don't make him very good like he puts himself he just gets out in broad daylight gets himself into taxi cabs you know he he attracts police attention to the things he yes. does and by the things that are done to him but it's not just it's not just what happens to him that that attracts the attention he seems to do things that you know are quite risky and i, we, I don't know we, we, we know he's a patriot because mm-hmm. yeah we, we know that part about him at least right i mean not the fact that you know that his wife was accidentally killed and he survived the bombing of his uh, of his house mm-hmm. presumably mm-hmm. by franco's uh you know the uh re- rebels most likely uh, yeah the rebels uh, yeah yeah there was, now we must state that in in this novel the names d and l and k uh mm-hmm. and the country and the unnamed country in which you know they, they come from uh this is this is essentially Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Francisco Franco, uh, who was supported at the time as well by uh, Nazi Germany, um, and even then, uh, this was still pre World War II as well. One thing I I want to comment about Graham's writing here is the I don't know if you agree with me, 
but there was almost a prophetic feel to it. Like when, when he called out images of, you know, uh, D being stuck in the rubble with a dead cat next to him and just mm-hmm. try, trying to just survive. I kept thinking too of like, you know, in a couple of years later, London itself, who was supposed to be this peaceful place during the war that no one, that the war hadn't come to in 250 years, according to, you know, what he said in the book, that England was this peaceful place. Mm-hmm. Only in a couple of years, you know, the Blitz would be hitting London and this would be a whole different world completely. So I just, I just found that really interesting in terms of, I guess, in hindsight, when he wrote this novel yeah, in hindsight how, yeah in hindsight how the same situation that d was in was coming to england in a way I, yeah so, and i agree with you but i'm not sure how prophetic he was in his writing of it or just how uh, or how kind of serendipitous everything was but serendipitous is, yeah. is a better word yeah uh-huh. than, than prophetic i'm not going to say he's nostradamus or anything like that because he probably think that was ridiculous anyways <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah well I, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But, you know, in, in just talking our way through the principles, um, if I can start with D, because he is the guy through whose eyes we're watching this story, even though it's not a strict first person, you feel it somehow stream of consciousness at some point, don't you? Even though I know that term is a little bit later in the 20th century. But you, you do get that sort of feel like we are looking at everything through his eyeline. It's clearly the narrative voice yes. we're associating with. We sympathize yes. with his cause. And and. I find him, though, Josh, to, to be a much more interesting person than I do a spy. Now, you intimated... Yes. You intimated at his backstory, the loss of his wife, and the, he, he's clearly suffering from the PTSD of, of the bombing and the deaths around him and whatnot. I find him an odd selection for a spy. I mean, obviously, he spoke good English, and obviously, he, he could talk and behave in those scholarly circles that might be useful for an intelligence operative. But I, I don't really buy him as a spy. Like, how did he ever become a spy? None of that backstory is given to us. He's a very... I, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I just assume that because of the situation that his country was in, that they never had really an, an elite uh, mm-hmm. bunch of people to, to do so. I think maybe because he was a scholar and intellectual, maybe that they thought enough, that... Yeah. That was enough and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny, like, you know, not funny, but I, I would say not and definitely not. This it wouldn't be serendipitous, as you said. The very fact this guy is like a scholar in historical romances, uh, very like an intellectual type person. I think there's a little bit of autobiography in his character for Green, okay, too. Sure. OK, sure. And the thing, too, is you pointed about, you know, about how he's not really a spy, per se. He just seems like just like maybe he seems to be like one of the spies or operatives that like. We, we, we read about today more so that are more realistic than this than the James Bond type mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know spy that we're familiar with in fiction right he seems like someone like uh, a, a friend of mine's uh, like uh, ex-girlfriend's father who was like an intelligence operative uh, who you know who was an attache with embassies and did intelligence work across the globe and it's a very bureaucratic kind of job mm-hmm. you know kind of like uh, the quiller books that um, in the movies, you know, that 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 were made is kind of like the anti-Bond, uh, I, I suppose you could say, right? Just emphasizing on the bureaucracy uh, of being a spy. And maybe that seems that, that seems what he was more like to me. But it seems like also that he was just like one the situation that he was in was desperate. So there, his country was in was desperate. So they needed to send someone to beat L. And it's interesting, too, is because L is also an, an intellectual, uh, supposedly like um D, they're almost like competing over the same university position, essentially, right? Mm, that's, so, that's, yeah, that's that's a way to look at it, isn't it? 
so there's definitely a kind of a rival, a professional rivalry going on as well. And again, like they're sending their intellectuals there because maybe that's all they have is intellectuals. The rest of them are just like, you know, like military minded people. And they want to impress the English with culture that they are a refined civilization still. And, and, you know, they, they have, you know, like a, a legacy of history behind them. And I mean, mm. that's an interesting is, observation. If, I never thought about is, that. Yeah. And if this is Spain, for example, like, I mean, the history between English and Spain, I mean, goes all the mm -hmm. way back, you know, to like, you know, the Marta and, and, uh, and you know, Elizabeth I and all that and, and Philip of, of Spain. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a long history and sending intellectuals there makes sense to me. But what I found interesting, and this, I think, goes into the description of them, uh, a description of, of D as a principle, is that he almost has like this metamorphosis uh, after the, the first book, you know, after the fact that he's going to be framed for Elsie's death and mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff, he just kind of like just pulls the gun. And he pulls the gun from the um, from the sec first secretary, and then he just essentially just transforms into like this figure of vengeance, you know, like afterwards. And uh, it's almost like he becomes like the Superman spy that, in, or he tries to anyways. And, and and Green, I think, was trying to sell that was like the idea that he's being impelled by. Uh, morality and uh, righteousness, you know, gives him powers that he never had before, and that he yes. that he kept deep deep within him that it was, becomes unleashed, you know, uh, when it, when the point of uh, injustice just gets too much that he just cracks underneath it, and uh, that's kind of think that's what that's what kind of made him interesting, and that's I think that's what Green intended is that he didn't want this guy to be like your typical type of spy, he wanted to kind of get to the point where this guy just becomes. Uh, has a psychological breakdown in a way where he becomes the spy, the kind of spy that we're familiar with, I guess you could say. Hmm. I, I don't know if you agree with that assessment, but well, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at it. I don't disagree with that assessment. I do question how well it works, though, as a narrative device, or sorry, as, as like a plot device. It feels, it, it felt to me like, I, I know the book is structured, you know, the hunted, the hunter, the end, right? I, I, I don't mind that at all. But I felt as though in the early stages of the book, and this is why I'm trying to feel him out a bit as a character, like he's very trusting, he's very honest, he's pretty naive, really, too. Like, and I, I do get well, he's it, He's not though. a man of violence, right? He's I understand that, violence. yeah, and, which and is and why... Okay. And he wanted to play it cool, and he wanted and he, and he wanted to get to his destination without a distraction because he mm -hmm. knew that if he was mm -hmm. didn't get there on time or distracted, some some things something bad would happen to him, mm -hmm. and or something could could be misinterpreted or something could go wrong with with what he had to do because he had to beat L right he had to beat yes. L yeah. to Bendit so they can have the, the so that they can get the coal contract yeah. before L does, and this is uh, justified later as we know because because of the of his delays and everything like that. Kay and uh, the manageress, who was who who's in on it, of course, they basically sell themselves out uh, to the enemy because they don't trust uh, D now to get the job done correctly, right? Or they don't trust him at all. They think he is already with the enemy. Yeah, they, so that's he's why been they superseded. That whole scheme. Yeah, yeah. So basically, like he was trying to do things cool and professional to get to where he needed to go without causing any distractions or any delays. And that's why he maybe he doesn't seem like a spy in this in this particular sense. Okay, perhaps yeah. Whereas yeah. L is the more um, he's certainly the more ambitious. He's the more make it or break it type of um, opportunist that we sense is oh, that that we that we tend to associate yeah. with the intelligence operative of today of more contemporary times at least. But exactly. You're, okay. You're yeah. James yeah. I mean, Bonds, you're, you're Jack mm -hmm. Ryan's that sort of thing. Well, in that light. 
then if you think about his transformation in the second part where he does finally say and there's a moment in the book where green writes you know i'm done being kind of passive i'm done i'm done trying to do it the right way i'm going to now be the hunter i'm going to flip the sw- flip the script so to speak um do you were you happy with how that kind of happened in a in a jolting way in the story did did you find that read okay uh, I, I guess I don't have. I, I guess it didn't bother me. I, I suppose yeah, okay. you could say. Yeah, like, that's, it, that's it, cool. It, 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 yeah. it, it, didn't, it didn't really bother me per se, and I and to me that's that was when that was kind of like when the novel started to start. I guess start firing all cylinders for me to use that. Yeah. You know, cliche. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Well, the the missteps that D makes they begin when he's in Dover though. This is one of the reasons why I find him kind of kind of ambling through the like, through through this story in the first half. I do like and I believe it i do believe kind of like you know the way he's so struck by the british society's casualness of everything right and like and that continues throughout the story even at the end where uh, captain curry buys him a drink as he tries to <laughs> as he tries to kind of hold him there for the police to come well we might as well get you a whiskey or something like that right like that yes like the way he kind of keeps turning his head uh, at, at just how sort of laid back they are. It is kind of like a frightening premonition of how the society is about to be destroyed and about to be challenged with, with World War II. And I, I, I get that. And lose its empire afterwards. Yeah, too. absolutely. But I find him just a bit of a lame spy. And I don't know that I can mm. read or I'm willing to give as much credit to the to the idea of him wanting to just be the sort of artisan, wanting to be the diplomatic guy who who, who kind of rubs shoulders in the right way. Because you know that there's this other wolf out there who's far more committed to getting things done. And Very you, much so. I just kind of feel the predictability of the first half of the text. We know he's going to screw up and he's not going to get it done quickly, right? Um, and this is why I, I, this is why I think... His frailties make him a far more interesting person, a more interesting character, the medieval scholar, the PTSD, the loss of his wife. That, that makes him interesting to read, but not interesting to read as an intelligent or believable to read as an intelligence operative. And I get what you're uh, saying. I think it's kind of like in a George Kaplan situation. Like, sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. George Kaplan. Yeah. For, well, well, okay. What North by character? Northwest, yeah. You're right, yeah. yeah. He's like in a Hitchcockian situation where he's somewhat of a modest kind of background. Even though, you know, he had all this trauma in his life, he was chosen by his government to do this deal because he was an intellectual. As I said, he sent another intellectual like him mm-hmm. who was okay. far more devious, who's done much more, I guess, his Moriarty to his Sherlock, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're trying yeah, to yeah. get the deal done. And uh, the, other, the other guy is willing to be compromised morality much more than D is, for example. But remember, though, is that sometimes you get hints of D's, uh, I guess, his moral Superman or righteous defender of justice personality coming out. Uh, Even when, for example, when in that fight with Curry and the chauffeur, Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, then he actually decides to like just punch the guy after a point. Right. So there is there is a moment where. Yeah, there's a breaking there, point where everything break, is. Yeah, 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 it's slowly breaking. Breaking point, and this is a man of violence who just showed that he would not be like the enemy. Who thought he was better than the enemy. So even even his own way, he he is kind of hypocritical deep down because uh, he is feeling his, this this anger and this frustration mm-hmm. deep down, and yeah. it finally reaches its breaking point here. And maybe that's I mean, maybe that's what it is. Like when he's pushed up against the wall, so to speak, because uh, he knows if he fails, he's going to be shot when he gets back home. So uh-huh. yes, yeah. it's. Uh, it's it, so he had really he had really no choice. So he knew that he had to get to there on time. I just think, and this is where I agree with you, is I, I kind of see where you're going with this. And correct me if I'm wrong. I just don't think in the writing of it. I think 
Green was very much sold on making an idea of him transforming into this indiv- this type of individual midway through the story. Mm-hmm. That I think it weakened the idea of him being a professional spy yes, in the first yeah. half. I you feel know what so. Because I mean? th- Roger th- Sternwood <clears throat> wasn't a professional spy. He was like a uh, a Madison Avenue type dude, right? Whereas uh, and George Kaplan is like you know Thornhill, isn't it Thornhill? Sorry, yeah, Roger Thur- Thornhill, Sternwood. I'm thinking of uh, Marlowe, yeah. yeah. Roger Thornhill in the North by Northwest was like a Madison Avenue executive, right? So he wasn't actually a spy himself either. So in, in, in that sense, he's similar with D, who's not really a great spy per se, but at least D is considered a spy and Roger mm-hmm. Thornhill. So that wasn't really a good example, but yeah. Anyway. No, I, I get what you're saying. Well, let's go on and talk about Rose then, because, and, and I'll just leave it at Would you call there. her a principal, though? I would, yes, because in because she has more age, she has the more necessary agency to help him. I mean, if you think about everything True. that's done right in this story, True. and I have a real problem with her too, because I felt that, you know, she, ironically, she's the one who tends to think more like an agent, or she, she's the one who remembers the encyclopedia entry that he mentioned to her. Yeah. She's the one who sets up his salvation in a sense, and she's also the one who says the right things at the right time and remembers the clues that that mm. he can't. Like when when speaking to Fortescue, you know, like she remembers things that kind of help with those social situations, and she's the one ironically, who thinks more impulsively and is instinctively sharp. And unfortunately... Maybe she is the confidential agent. Well, mm-hmm. well for me at least, her agency is completely undercut by the shallowness of, of how she's drawn up. Like, she is an unbelievable partner in romance, as far as I'm concerned. Like, maybe being young and rich and entitled, even if she's estranged from her father, gives her some credibility at making mistakes. But I really find it hard to believe that she'd go for an older, kind of tame foreigner artist type who's yeah, like 20 years is, older, lacking like ambition. himself into the story a little bit, I think you've hit the nail on the head, buddy. I think this is Green writing himself into the story because he... D lacks ambition. He's got nothing much going for him. And the idea of her daddy complex feels like a real convenient write-in just to allow for a little love story to happen. Because although she's on one hand really impulsive and instinctively sharp and whatnot, she's also quite frivolous and kind of kind of she's she's written in a rather stupid mold. Like oh, she's the rich estranged daughter of the guy who he's going to need to meet ultimately. And There's she, a contempt for her in the writing a little. Oh, bit. dude, I, absolutely. I, I kind of yes, I and agree this with you. Yeah. Some of the misogynist yeah. uh, uh, libels that are thrown at Green. Yes, I, I, yep. I would say. And, and I agree with that part for sure. I think there is a contempt for her in the writing, but at the same time, there's also agency there. And I find this quite a challenging thing to balance out, like as a reader. <laughs> yeah. Like, am I supposed it's, to like her? Like, she helps yeah. D, but she's also really frivolous, as I say. And I, I don't know, man. I don't know. I can't help but feel like there's a bit of Winston and Julia vibe from 1984 here. And I know that that book's still a decade away, but like, is. Is that relationship from 1984 not kind of like an improvement on this one? You know what it, I mean? In a way, it is, yeah. They're definitely absolutely. the same mold, even though, you know, Winston's not a foreigner to the nation. But there is a... There's something he's an, similar there. He's an outsider there. in his own way yeah. to the nation. So there, that, that uh, part fits for sure. I and mean, in a way... Rose is a outsider in her own way too because uh-huh, she's uh-huh. a bastard, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, and she's a bit of a contradiction. She she's more intelligent than he is, she, kind of. Green, Green portrays her as an intellectual in some mm. way, but he's also making fun of her intellectualism. But at the same time, it's, he's also using it to to prop up D in a way as well. So it's uh-huh. very sort of like uh, 
going back and forth between how he feels about her as a character. Like mm -hmm. he's like, I, I find this woman fascinating. I like that she's intellectual. So therefore I can deal with her on my own basis. But at the same time, like uh, there's also, you know, that part of, as I said, writing himself in going, well, this is right now he's writing this book on Benedictine and he's having an affair with the landlady's daughter. So like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, what do you pull in from that? Right. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think she's an interesting character and I'd be interested, you know, if, if you go away listeners and, you know, you, anybody wants to follow our, you know, our, our book, you want to go away and read this, then I think anybody who picks up this book is going to find Rose a bit of a contradiction because she is more intelligent and impulsive than D, which gives her agency in she's these key moments. She's more street smart and social, more street more smart, social, yeah. More yeah. street smart, socially smart than D. Yeah. D. D definitely shows someone who is an intellectual who is very isolated where he used to live. Now, he has done some traveling and he's a very mm -hmm. romantic and he sees things in black and white in the world. Whereas I think she's thinking things morally gray because she always reminds D like throughout the story. It's like, well, don't be so dramatic, you, you know, mm. and she sees things on a pragmatic level, a survival level. You know, it's like going like, well, I'm not going to stay in love with you if you're dead. I'm going to forget about you and move on. So uh -huh. she sees things in the here and the now, like in the physical world. Right. And D is much more like transcending, you know, that physical world that he's in because he hates that world that he lives in. And he wants, you know, and he wants to be passionate and explore and do all these things, you know, like he has this passionate sort of mm -hmm. scholarly sort of uh, myopia, I guess you could say. Whereas Rose doesn't really have much scope or sense of how to improve her own life and she doesn't really seem interested in it. And Green doesn't really bother giving us any sense of that either. No, he doesn't. Yeah, she's, she's like, just, well, like, she's, she's, she's rich. She's inheriting money. That's fine. She'll be all right. This is just like an adventure for her or mm -hmm. something, right? And she she's kind of a spoiled brat in that way, or that's the way the Green writes her anyway. There's easily potential within her character, and it's very clear that Green isn't against writing a character of her ilk, you know, a woman with agency, but ultimately she she's just kind of left on the page to be this silly, reckless, romantic type where... Well, I don't know. I, th I think she I think she is responsible for helping him out in very significant ways, but she doesn't get much credit for it. I suppose that's what I mean. Fair. I think in this particular story, the transformation of Dee going from, you know, this mild-mannered, like, very lame spy, as you said, to, like, this almost like this heroic uh, avenging figure, I guess mm -hmm. you could say, in the last act, like this badass kind of, like, almost <laughs> John John Wick almost individual. <laughs> well, I don't, uh, well, okay. I don't know. I'd go I, there. I, I, I wouldn't really go that far, but it's kind, of, <laughs> it, it kind of funny, though, because even though he tries to do that, he still ends up being, like, saved by others, you know, saved by Rose, That's right, yeah. saved by the gang, you know, like... Mm -hmm. uh, saved by the gang, who, saved who, by Forbes. Who do his work for him, who, who serendipitously know, do right? his work for him, right, by blowing up the mine and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny how in the end he's just kind of ineffectual to the whole to the whole matter. Like, it, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. Um... Yeah, he bumble he bumbles. He's saved by them, and then he, he trades the gun, and then they yes. do it for him, and then he kind of bumbles his way back onto the boat through the help of other people. He's really not a good agent at all. No, he is he, not. He is yeah. not a good agent. He's an interesting yeah. man, and I think if the story was more set up to be like, if the investigation rather, which is what we're talking about, yes. if that was more set up to be like, you know, like a Hitchcock story where a guy like Roger Thornhill finds himself in in a situation he's got to get out of, that would be more believable because I can't imagine a country sending this guy, you know, who's got such a wide-eyed romantic view of, you know, of, of the empire, of, of being in, in London and, and in England. I can't imagine them sending him over like, oh shit, he's the best one we got. Well, we're never winning this war. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, maybe in a way, like Green wanted to show, and this goes, I think, into the investigation part very much yeah, so because yeah. it's in the writing of the story. Uh, he wanted to show like this the typical kind of like uh, action hero, I guess, of these particular tales, these thrillers. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to show them as some was actually like more bumbling and a postmodern mm -hmm. view of these types of people and of these types of characters. Okay. So maybe that's so what maybe. he was going with. Can I ask you a or, question, buddy? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, like, with respect to how the the, and this could be partly environment. So maybe, I mean, I'm talking about it in terms of the writing style, uh, but there's a lot of, like, I think the Graham really does capture the bleakness of the sort of post-war Britain. Like there's a lot of sort of mist and fog, too much perhaps. It's, I mean, how much fog is too much fog? How much is too much? Because we got fog at the beginning, fog well, going through like Dover, fog going through London. Into, yeah. I mean, there's fog everywhere here. I, I do really like the opening of the story, though, but I'm wondering, is this a little Dover. too heavy-handed? The gulls swept over Dover. They sailed out like flakes of the fog and tacked back towards the hidden town while the siren mourned with them. Other ships replied, a whole wake lifted up their voices. For whose death? The ship moved at half speed through the bitter autumn evening. It reminded Dee of a hearse rolling slowly and discreetly toward the garden of peace, the driver careful not to shake the coffin, as if the body minded a jolt or two. Hysterical women shrieked among the shrouds. Like, I like that beginning. It is it is pretty good, and there's certainly literary touches there. But do you think that that play on sort of premonition of death and fog and mist and subterfuge do you think that those environmental cues which we're getting through the narrative here do you think that they're a little too heavy-handed or do you like that i mean or is is this still early enough in the genre's creation that thrillers can play on it without feeling pastiche or without feeling cliche I would say that's a good point. And early in, uh, yeah, because right now we're seeing these tropes and every day now being used. Yeah, and, yeah. And so we're just used to them in that fashion. So when we see it now, we kind of roll our eyes a little bit. But back mm. then, it might have been more distinctive. And the fact that, as I said, there's like a philosophic bent to his writing. So he's definitely uh -huh. comes from a literary background. So he's trying to put class into this particular genre, or so he feels that he is anyways. Well, I so, think he succeeds a little bit in doing that. Do you Do you yeah. think he succeeds in putting a little bit of that? I, I do, because there, I, I agree. Yes, absolutely. there's a lot of nice writing in here. I've got this line, too. Tell me what you think of this one, eh? Uh, this is when he's talking about Elsa. Uh, he says that she had all the innocence of a life past since birth with the guilty. Now, obviously, because she's never known any crime or any real hardship in her life, she doesn't understand, by extension of that, just how corrupt people around her could be, you know? Yes, not and, like a naivety. Yeah. And I like that. I really like that sentence. I just think that the structure of that, that, that line is, is really nice, you know? She had all the innocence of a life past since birth with the guilty. I think that's yeah, a good sentence. He's definitely trying to uh, sell the fact that, you know, this Elsie is, isn't like Rose, isn't like anyone else, that she's just an innocent individual and uh, she's the one who becomes the victim of the entire situation, right? And yeah, she's yeah. also the uh, – her, her murder-suicide, so to speak, uh -huh. uh, is like the impetus on which uh, the transformation of D to super agent occurs or mm -hmm. or attempted super agent anyways. Because, yeah. if you, I mean, if you look at it, like he kidnaps uh, Kay and then – doesn't shoot him, even though he, you know, and then he has like one bullet left, which doesn't, which was used to by uh, by someone else besides him. So again, it's just uh, it's just the ineffectuality of his character as an agent, and more of just as someone as an yeah. agent of moral good, I guess you could say. If you want to take terms of Dungeons and Dragons in terms of like alignment uh -huh. of characters, right? Like 
uh, chaotic good or neutral good or something mm-hmm. along those lines, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he he's, he's he's an agent of good, I guess, of, 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 of the greater good, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's steeped into these old stories, you know, that's uh, like the, the child of Roland, which is about Charlemagne fighting the the uh, the Muslim invasions of uh, north from from northern Spain, right? So well, when those become your lens through which you e- view exactly. the world, you're ultimately naive and a bit of a exactly. buffoon. Exactly, exactly, and that goes into how he's describing Elsie yeah. and how he sees her in that fashion. Because yeah. I think, in a way, he considers himself as an innocent as well. Like he doesn't want to get involved in the violence. He doesn't fight the chauffeur when the chauffeur wants to beat the crap out of him. He mm-hmm. does it. He stands there and takes it. And then eventually he's sorry. And then basically we get to the point where like he just just stops. I don't want to. He's like, I can't take it anymore. And then he snaps at the embassy. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, leads to the rest of the story in that fashion. But even then, he's still doing it ineffectually. (laughs) Well, do you think, buddy, that maybe this is Green's way of saying through the investigation that you cannot effectively operate? as an intelligence operative in the modern world or the growing modern world or the post-war world or a world with premonitions of world war, do you think he's saying that that type of intelligence, that sort of soft touch intelligence doesn't work? You need to be like L. I mean, is L ultimately the champion of the story for the way he profits by his actions? Yeah, he's like the pragmatist, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. Well, I mean, he also has his own agenda as well. And uh-huh. sure, so, he does. So, yeah. So yeah. and and they don't actually and the, and the stuff that he does and the stuff that he tells him to do, like, I think Graham doesn't give that doesn't give L enough. I guess you could say of, I think he paints L a bit too, uh, how, a bit too thinly. Like he's he's almost like because you don't really get a sense of L who he is. You just know that he's his he's his that he's kind of like the rival to D. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find with the with the with the, with the um, portrayal of L in the writing, he seems like a bit two dimensional or uh, not. Sorry, a little bit one dimensional in terms yes. of like he's yeah. like a he's like a villain for villain's sake. You know? What yeah, I mean? he's like a snidely whiplash. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he and, is. And, and so I, I, I so you never even though he's a pragmatist and he gets the job done through ruthlessness in a very Machiavellian way. You know, he's sort of like a. Um, I don't know, like a Walsingham or, yep. you know, like, yep. like, like, like a little finger type, I guess you could say uh-huh. he's, he's just someone who's a pragmatist, but he's, he's, but regardless, he's evil and he has to be stopped because the, the, the people that he works for in the, in the country that shall, you know, shall not be named, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're evil because they're taking over the freedoms of the left wing government of, of the country that shall not be named. Do you know what I mean? That's right. And yeah. D has to stop them because they represent all this evil in the world. And here he is, like he's basically Spain, which is think of the child of Roland. Spain is invaded by Muslims. And then they're coming because this is the Reconquista. This is this is like the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne basically defending Christendom from uh, the Muslim invasion. And so I think D sees himself as like a, like Roland in that story as the hero who is fighting against the oppression of of, of a uh, authoritarian government, I guess you could say. Huh. That That's interesting. I mean, I, I yeah. didn't read it with quite that bent, but of course, I think that his his readership probably would have been more perceptive to that simply because the Spanish Civil War is very much in the background, right, of, yeah, of yes. the story. And yes. one of the reasons why maybe today we could read this and say, why didn't he just say where he's from? It's because he wanted that subtlety in the text for his readers of the time. And that's one of the things that doesn't age so well, I guess, in the investigation. But you know, I, I agree 100% with what you're saying about L as the antagonist in the investigation, a guy without much character, because 
and without much dimension but he is he just has the, the evil dimension yeah. of someone he has someone he has a dimension of someone like a, a stereotype portrayed in a historical romance he has that kind of yeah, dimension yeah. which you is know what mean? Mean, yeah yeah, yeah. That, and he does he, that's where i think the connection is anyway and he also cleverly gets others to do much of the things that he does like you think about the bribery he offers that himself at the beginning yes. but then then the the sort of litany the the litany of his crimes grow and grow in seriousness you got the bribery to start but then there's the assault the attempted theft imposing the false false accusations then we've got the theft then we've got the, the framing murder. the framing for murder yeah exactly and the murder and all of this stuff he gets others to do for him yes. and he never dirties his own hands, which ultimately makes him the better operative. Yes. And I think, I think the green is trying to create in the reader's mind that, you know, to compete with this sort of treachery, you're going to have to get your hands dirty and you're going to exactly. have to, you're going to have to do that second part of the book, that third act type action, right? Like that's what's exactly. going to be required. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Well, uh, I've said it. I pretty much like, yeah, you're, you're pretty much supporting everything that I'm saying about, okay, yeah, the, yeah. about green's attentions, you know, with that, with the character tr- and his transformation at the embassy. Right. Yeah. Uh, when he comes down where he's with the, the straw that breaks the camel's back is the frame up mm-hmm. and everything. And, mm-hmm. and then his escape, I'm not, and I'm not taking this anymore. Uh, this is what the term, what they did to Elsie that probably triggers, you know, what happened to his wife killed accidentally and everyone else in the yeah. bomb means in, in in his homeland all these things i think come to and then he realizes he has to get his hands dirty he has to basically uh scare the shit out of a living shit out of a, out of a right. man uh by yeah. by stalking him all the way through london through like the, through a whole you know business through a whole soiree so to speak uh mm-hmm. at the entre nationio whatever which <laughs> yeah. is basically esperanto essentially that's right yeah, yeah. uh but uh you know, and then it bring, 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 and pretty much bringing him to his to to you know, and pretty much like um, causing the guy to have a uh, a heart attack or something like that, right? So hmm. uh, we've got an interesting little thing going on here, buddy. I'm just thinking about it. It's cool the way this chat's been a bit organic because usually we go you know column by column through each of our pipes, but we've got the first three parts of our acronym here that we're kind of talking about without having offered our scores yet. This is pretty cool. Yeah, so, I, I think it's working that way. Now, to talk about the intel about the investigation, uh, just one more thing I think sure, before go we ahead. go on detail about the perpetrators, uh, is that I give really high marks to the writing of of the story in terms of like how Green delivers suspense, and uh, I, I think he does a great job of making things seem organically and how bumbling around and creating scenarios and things that connect that you know cause chain reactions like running into Curry. There's a lot of serendipity there, of course, but it is still believable in the story. I always like, I always, and I found that whole thing about the escape after the whole bombing occurs and and the, the trial, and then he gets out because of uh, Forbes's influence and everything like that, and yeah. Forbes drives him all the way to the um, uh, coast, yeah, to the coast where that resort is and everything, and then running into Curry, and then you're thinking, oh man, so he's actually going to go to jail, and then that's it, and something's going to happen, and then he's done, and that's the end of the story. But then all of a sudden, you know, there, there's a whole thing where you're, he still leaves you in suspense. He still continues a conversation as if, you know, there's going to be what's going to happen next. And then you have the whole thing of the, the cops arriving. And then, of course, you realize that it's actually agents that are sent to pick him up that as they said they would. And so he does a good job, I think, of pulling the rug underneath you. But he doesn't do it like in a very ham fisted kind of way, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a well-written book, and the investigation runs nicely. Uh, whatever whatever shortcomings the characters have, in my in my opinion, it doesn't really detract too much from the fact that this is a bit of a rollicking story. It, it moves quickly yeah. along. It, it it will pick you up in the in its wake, and you'll you'll run with it. You won't you won't be like 
while I wouldn't call it a page turner, the suspense is legitimate. It is, it's well conceived and um, you're not bored when you're reading the book. Like I, I don't think anybody will be bored reading it. They might be incensed by some of the character points and some yes. of the motivations, but I don't think it's a boring story. It, it reads no. well. It's got a good pace. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good points. So just dive in. So we talked about, we talked in the perpetrators, we talked about uh, L for sure. L, yeah. Yeah. For so sure. I, th I think we dissected him pretty well and what he is. Uh -huh. uh, we, now we move on to, you know, we have K who is kind of like this, uh, who is basically this coward, so to speak, who, who twists and turns with the wind. And uh, he, he's the one who with the manager has decided to, you know, go over to the other side because they think that L D is already compromised already. Mm -hmm. So, they, they, they don't they don't, give, they don't give him a chance really they just set the whole thing up with Elsie because it's convenient to do so and they have the manager is who's like who's, who's on their her own a side villain like i think she's she was, the bigger i think she's the second villain in the story because she, yeah. she certainly controls k in, in a way like she does she's got more and she's kind of depicted in the story almost as like this troll you know she has to she can't be an attractive villain she has to be ugly with like the impetago or the eczema or, or whatever yeah. kind of description yeah. that uh yeah. that, like kind of like what fleming gave rosa Klebb. that's what green is giving to the manageress there uh, that's exactly what i've written on page 84 in my margin of rosa Klebb. i'll just read you this little bit here um mr k moved with appalling slowness towards the door the manageress's black skirt was close to his mouth dusty like the cat's fur he wanted to scream but the weight of human dignity lay like a gag over his tongue one didn't scream even when the truncheon struck he heard her say where are the papers leaning down on him her breath was all cheap scent and nicotine half female and half male like the sort of animalistic quality, you know, you get with those descriptions, with those descriptions that Fleming likes to draw on for a lot of his yeah. ug ugly women characters yeah. too. Yeah. What's, inter what's interesting though is that um, his portrayal of Muk of Mukherjee, uh, mm. Green, Green, of mm. Mukherjee, the the other tenant in the uh, boarding house that. Uh, uh, that, nosy that, neighbor, that, yeah. That, that, that DSA off, he's a nosy neighbor, but I never really got any really really racist uh, at. No. portrayals of, of, of Mukherjee whatsoever. Um, so I found that kind of interesting and refreshing in a way, but at the same time, like, okay, so I guess he's not a racist, but he's definitely probably, you know, as someone of, I guess, of his time uh, and also of his own social issues and mental issues, he's a little bit of a misogynist. Uh, he uh, is, yes. But, and I, I wonder, buddy, as well, as I was reading about Mukherjee, like, I, I don't know if, if he's playing on a stereotype of the time as like the nosy Indian or the the sort yeah. of uh, the sort of inquisitive neighbor. Is he a stereotype or a template of, 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 a, of a racial slur or a character that I don't know? Like I don't have a reference point for because Mukherjee is certainly certainly decisive in the fact that he takes notes on people. He's nosy, and that helps in the end exonerate D from some of these allegations against him. Later in the story, we hear it, it from does. Forbes, but they I don't know. I don't know. They, it seems like Green was kind of setting up Mukherjee to be a bit of like almost like a peeping tom type kind of individual. Yes, uh, I think so. And, yeah, and and then in the end he kind of he subverts that by suggest you know by by telling us that this guy was just like this like part of this society of like observers or something like that uh which reminds me of some other references outside of in pop culture besides this but mm. uh just like just like basically take, making reporting to this group of people you know there's always his observations on society and everything and uh i like the idea too of the fact that mukherjee i guess we're kind of going to a bit of the supporting cast here as well and that's, matter. and that's, per that's, that's perfectly that's perfectly yeah. fine uh the idea that uh, Mukherjee is like you know he's a foreigner, but he lives in England and he lives in England, and England's such a great place to live and, and and a very peaceful place to live where people like foreigners like him 
or who are part of the empire are respected uh-huh, in their own, right, in, yeah. in their way where D in is not way, yeah. because he is still part of that other society and that kind of isolates him even more. And so in that particular way, it just seems that it just shows, I guess, the degree of unfairness that D is being treated in this story, either through, you know, his own bubbling or through just, you know, what people think of foreigners when there is a war on, so to mm-hmm. speak, as well as, uh, you know, the machinations that are going against him through L. It, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right with Mukherjee. Um, but I would wonder how you view Dr. Bellows, because if Mukherjee represents, you know, and maybe Green was trying to say something about this, that, you know, Mukher- through Mukherjee, you know, the everyman who, the foreigner who, you know, really might have a better handle on what's going on in your neighborhood than you do. You Or, are... or, or Hodgepit, the concerned... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> then you, that's then you right. Have like Hodgepit, who defends K, who defends K, another foreigner... Uh, from the cop, you know, who, who, uh, who you know, because oh, yeah. that that was comic relief in the story for me. I was not really feeling the tension there at all. I felt that that was really stupid the way that cop just sort of jumped in and was like, "Ha ha ha! Well, here, here, sir, let me do my job, sir." And he's like, "Well, I'm a, I'm a free citizen, and, and I'm here to defend this man because this man has uh, done nothing wrong. I saw him." Well, I, that's obviously like a manufactured tension in 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 the sense where like Green is didn't sorry, come off uh, me. yeah. D is trying to uh, track this guy. He's trying to follow this guy in the, in the, in the taxi cab, you know, in a very sort of spy slash espionage kind of way. And it's supposed to be very, it's supposed to, I think they're supposed to, it was, it was it's intentionally supposed to convey, you know, that, you know, I think of the, I think of the classic scene of, of like, you know, of someone being tailed and as a, and, you know, you see, oh, there's such an efficient operator in what they're doing, but this cop shows up and, and, uh, and then like, gets gets in the way and, and then all of a sudden this this concerned citizen shows up and stuff like that so uh there's like this weird sort of i'm trying to describe that sequence but it's almost like as if they're trying to show how these particular operations can suddenly go awry in in the mm-hmm, sense mm-hmm. of of just individual people off the street and just some innocent and the way the way the bystanders just kind of like muck things up i guess you could say mm-hmm, because sure. yeah. because Hodgepit was definitely mucking things up for d in that sequence because he was preventing the guy from going home so d could uh, could, could could ambush him, right? How much did you believe in Dr. Bellows not really knowing what was going on within his whole education center? I, I don't know. I think I think Green was portraying him as a bit of a fool and a bit mm. of an idea and a bit of an idealist mm-hmm. as well. Yes, a bit of an idealist. Yeah. So uh, I think maybe he might have knew something was going on, but I think he was too welcoming to other cultures and other ideas and mm-hmm. kind of like the idea of like a liberal with his heart on his sleeve, so to speak. Well, I ask you this question again, then. Is this Graham Greene making some sort of comment on how um, how the empire's willingness to let in foreigners is a bad thing? Now, I mean, this Could is... Be. He was th- treated th- in a comical fashion. And does Mukherjee's character kind of reinforce that or support that view the author could have had about how, you know, you can't let... If you're letting... You know, what's going to happen? You're going to have a guy like gullible Dr. Bellows who lets lets all these people in, doesn't understand that his education center is actually a front for is a front for intelligence operatives, you know, who are using it because it's an easy place to meet up. And Mukherjee, as the sort of nosy foreign neighbor who has more data on you and your neighborhood than you have yourself, you're entitled sort of you're just sort of slovenly and entitled British. And I, I can't help but feel if maybe some of these supporting players are are a sort of not mouthpieces, but are um, mirrors that 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 Green's holding up to his British readership and saying, "Look, here's what's happening. If you if you don't get a handle on how 
uh, how entitled and liberal you're becoming with, okay, maybe not immigration, but maybe you're getting too comfortable in your own skin. And there's people yes. who are out there in the world that will take advantage of you. There yes, are wolves. And I don't know if he had a problem with foreigners. I'm not for a minute trying to say that Graham Greene you know, was a xenophobic or anything like that. But is there maybe a way to read these characters like Bellows as sort of the foolish, blind, myopic idealist and Mukherjee as the foreigner who, who poses a threat to the to the British people through the data collection and things like that? Like, yes, is it a exactly. warning story? Is it a warning story? It could be a warning story. And think of like uh, you were talking about, you know, Mukherjee and you're, and you're talking about uh, Bellows. Mm. And then you go into like Bates, the union guy in uh, <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. in, uh, in uh, Benedict. And then so the union guy is clearly, you know, the someone who would probably be willingly allied with communist uh, sympathizers. Whereas, if you, you know, guys like uh, Bellows are taken advantage by people like mm -hmm. that, right? That's right, yeah. So they're able to have organizations like that are very liberal, and then they can hide people who are communist in those organizations. Sure. And yeah. that's why some of these organizations, the whole idea of like the, you know, the radical left, so to speak, exists within the moderate left, and they hide in there. And that's where all, you know, the whole idea of the right wing kind of paranoia about the left is hiding these individuals and they're eventually going to take control of society because they have the leftist agenda, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that idea, which is pervading a lot of social media these days and the mindset of people these days, unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, is, was still was, was pretty much still not in its infancy back then, but it was more prevalent and actually a happening more so than it is today, mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Yeah. I think we got the supporting characters. Like we talked about Elsie a little bit, the innocent child that gets caught up in all of this, yeah, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's clear in the novel too. And despite, you know, people say about Green, I think it's clear in the novel that uh, the any romantic aspirations was was not intended because that's all part of the frame up. Because mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. know, because we know that there's more romantic feelings or so that are forced anyways. Yeah, they are what forced. Rose, yeah. About what uh, D feels about Rose, for example, right? Uh, so those are, the, I, I think, you know, that's all intended in the frame up to make it look as bad as possible so that he'd have no mm -hmm. other way he, that, that basically he had other, no other choice in the actions he committed to break through, to break free. I can't help though, buddy. I can't help but feel as though D is somewhat emasculated by, um, by Rose oh, in, yes, in, in so far as she saves him and he kind of, he then looks at her as the one. And I like that. I mean, I do and she, like and that. And she gets him in the end. She gets what she wants in the end too. Mm -hmm. Like she and, does, and, yeah. and like because because we we learned that um, that uh, Forbes actually like uh, decided you know to let her choose her own heart essentially on the whole matter. Like because he loved her, he decided you know to. Uh, go with what, what whatever she wished, and he still helped her anyways, right? Yeah, so we haven't For said much about Forbes, but he is an well, interesting character in the story. He really, he really is. Yeah. At first, like I like I, I was wondering, you know, like why he was already, he was like conveniently the, the guy of that circle besides Benditch and Lord what's his name Fedding, I think mm -hmm, it is, or mm -hmm. yeah, that were sort of uh, you know they were very much like oh I can't believe your story, but Forbes was was, was at least willing to believe because of Rose I think because he trusted her in that matter. So we know that he's helping uh, D along because of Rose, and in the end he doesn't get the girl at all, but it, but he does in the end still help mm -hmm. uh, uh, help D, and so he is an agent of good in the world. And I think Green is saying something there about you know there are people despite you know their worst in, you know not their worst but people despite you know well their upbringing. 
their Thank upbringing and, and their desires, you uh -huh. know, they're still able to be a good person in the end. And I think yeah. Green was kind of given a little, uh, I guess, a skosh of, uh, I, I guess, a little bit of uh, an inkling of hope, I suppose. For the um, upper class and the aristocracy, the, yeah. Exactly, which yeah. he was kind of like slightly a part of, I guess, in his own oh, way. Oh, I, I would agree with you. And I do think yeah. also that Forbes, I mean, he is a bit of a patsy. He is a bit of a patsy for kind of what happens to him. But, you know... At the beginning, Rose telegraphs, doesn't she, like that he's an honest guy. Oh, you're meeting with Forbes. Well, he's an honest guy. You know, and, yes. and she telegraphs that. And behind Your the first, scenes, yeah. behind the scenes when he is incarcerated and he's taken in uh, in Bendich there uh, and he goes back to London, he doesn't know all the things that Forbes, D doesn't know all the things that Forbes doing behind the scenes, you know, getting the lawyer, getting the, the good representation and, and ultimately getting him out on bail. Like these things which he does for 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 Rose, fine, but D, I don't know. Like Forbes is an interesting guy. He's 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 a cool little character, and it would be neat to see kind of how miserable his life is after this story ends. You know. Yeah, for sure. And one thing too to point out is that in his writings, there's a prevalence uh, for Green to, dep to display uh, Jewish people, like Forbes, for example, Firstine, uh, uh -huh. as uh, as a, a, in a very positive kind of way. You mm -hmm. notice how he describes, like he goes into detail about like the skull structure of of. Uh, the, I guess the skull structure of he does, um, yeah, that did stand out to me, yeah, yeah, of uh, Forbes, right, indicating that he was indeed of the Semitic tribe, uh -huh. and and so to me it seems like, again, I think he was trying to create a sense of outsiderness to Forbes, and then that he was different from everyone else in this society, and of course he would be the one that would help D out as well. Mm -hmm. So I think there was some connection there, um, or some sort of correlation there. What did you think of the environments in the story? I figure we'll just talk through our categories well, and then and then we can kind of score them after. But yeah, yeah, I would say for the environments, I think you went into it there. There is some kind of like heavy-handed way that he describes it. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a pathetic fallacy going on in the story, yes, you know. Most certainly, the whole yeah. the whole idea that like the, the the fog represents, you know, the intrigue and mm -hmm. the and the mystery of the whole story. Then you even have the part at the very end, you know, when he's making his when he's making his way onto the ship at the end and the and, uh -huh. the, and the waves are going up crazy and flying yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Like it's almost like it's at the point where like <laughs> the whole story is that it's like it's most fervent you know uh, -huh. uh and the emotions and, and, and what d is feeling are at its most highest i guess you could say um at the whole situation uh-huh i like the boat at the beginning boat at the end it gives it gives things quite a tight structure the environment is used and, well and rose you know. at the beginning rose the, at the uh, beginning rose at, 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 at the, the end yeah at, at, at the train pl the train mm -hmm. pl platform well she's on the, the ferry, ferry as well and, and um, yeah, she's on she's on the ferry. Yeah. But then she's she's also on on the train the, platform. Uh, yeah. On the train platform again. But yeah, as you said, she was on the ferry at the beginning, and then she was on the boat at the end. So right. that's a full circle. Full um, circle for the me. story. Yeah, it's it's interesting way that it uh, kind of works out. And and she's the one who gets everything that she wants in the end. Like she arrives there, and Dee does his thing and all his bumblings and gets into his situation, and then she gets him out of it, and then and then she goes back with him essentially. So I think uh, I think you would agree with me then that D in terms of his in terms of his narrative arc he's a more interesting person and man than he is a good agent and i think yes that's quite clear on green's part you know otherwise we don't have a chase right we don't have a pursuit in that way um but w did you enjoy the second half of the story or perhaps i should say the third act of the story more than you did the first two I was frustrated in, in, in I was frustrated in the hunted the uh -huh. first part of the book. I was very frustrated on that because he was bumbling around and stuff and uh, and he wasn't acting like a secret agent that I knew of. You know what I mean? Like I can see I know someone who knows a lot about spycraft and stuff like that would be very upset about a lot of uh, the stuff that D did in terms of being a spy. Like how he basically the chauffeur how he basically accused the guy of stealing something. Like that's not being subtle. That's not being low key. You know what I mean? That's something that like to me makes him look a bit unprofessional. 
And there's a, there's like parts of that where it was really frustrating. But then I felt this kind of a Hitchcockian feel of his character being like an everyman who's put in this situation who has to survive. And so I like that part of it. Uh, then it kind of turns into like almost like this uh, attempt at an action revenge thriller or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. midway through with the cliches that we're very familiar with. There probably weren't as cliche back then. But he was definitely re-examining some of those tropes and I think making them a bit more humanistic and a bit more like what what the everyman would do as opposed to what the over-the-top like hero pulp character would do in those situations. But even that itself is undercut, isn't it, by the fact that it's a group of teenagers that execute his plot. <laughs> it's a group oh, of absolutely. disadvantaged youths. Exactly. Yeah, I found that really kind of amusing. Now the Baker Street Irregulars essentially save. Uh... <laughs> uh, but they are, yeah, but they're they're a little more sinister than that, I think. Yeah, and they were yeah, and they were more like they were really street Arabs, like, like Fagans, Fagans boys, yeah. Yeah, they were more like uh, they're teenagers too, right? So yeah. they were very, they're they're the future Marxist youth, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, uh, who knows? But yeah, that's definitely true. It's a good point. Well, let's score these uh, categories up then, buddy. What would you sure. would you go for for principles? For principles, um, I wanted to give, like, I really enjoyed the character of D. I found him a very believable individual. As a spy, I found that, I agree with you, that it was a little bit vague, despite, you know, the narrative supporting, in the end, you know, making making sense of that. It still wasn't, to me, in the writing in the first part of the book. So, as a whole, I really enjoyed D. I'm going to give him a four as a whole. Uh, Rose, I throw in there as well. Be, I, w- does not make it a higher mark for me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't go to a 4.5 because of Rose's in, inclusion. Sure. I think a four is good for both two to, for both their characters because Rose was a bit inscrutable in that sense too yeah, because she really was I, yeah. I, I wasn't quite 100% sure of her intentions until the uh-huh. very end and so I found her a bit of enigma kind of like D in a way but not in the sense of D just being like more of a reactionary character whereas uh, Rose was much more premeditated in her uh-huh. actions I guess throughout the story well I come back to this idea of balance and I'm not quite sure that I get I get comfortable ever seeing Rose as uh, as a proper character because she's both impulsive and smart in she's those a impulses. Mood. She's an idea. She's like yeah. an idea. She's not. She's not well drawn. Yes. And uh, I also found it difficult to reconcile the the lack of the like the backstory. We get a good personal backstory, but we don't get a professional backstory to D, and that makes it really difficult for me to believe him as as an exported agent from any country, let alone a war torn civil war. You know, I mean, yeah, like, I, I get sure it. Sure, he's but, a professor, but maybe yeah. a flashback or explain about him like having yeah, to like I think you know so. ex- maybe a flashback about him having to like. I don't know, like execute a bunch of the rebels or something like that, or something to harden him or make him a spy, you know, like that could have been included in the background as well. Like, oh, well, he's at university, but he also served, you know, in the, in, in, in the defense force or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Just to drop a dialogue like that or, or a description like that would have fleshed it out a bit more to me. Just a little, yeah. But they're more, but but uh, Green was more focused on all the PTSD and all of the of all of the trauma that he was mm-hmm. going through, the death of his wife, the bombing, almost dying, and being, uh, you know, asphyxiated underneath all the rubble and everything like that, and and just to how he's and the whole his whole world destroyed and his and his whole like romantic view of the world and everything like that kind of well, made him naive and made him very much not a, a spy, which who who are individuals that have to work in a very gray-minded sort of way, you know, right. very pragmatic yeah. sort of way. And we also have to reckon. We also have to recognize the fact that perhaps Green didn't really intend for as much as as we are kind of retconning because he was drug influenced when he wrote this by his own admission, <laughs> and you know, it, it, and so we we got to consider that maybe some of the messages and the things he was trying to do, like we we can't just 
reinvent that or we shouldn't no, at least just kind of gush at it. We're yeah. only supposing. We're only supposing. Yeah. But I went three for the principles. The investigation, okay. the investigation, I, I did like the investigation. I found that the, in terms of the, the, the story, it was tight. I liked the structure, the narrative structure of it. I liked the, the three parts to it. I didn't always yes. agree with the motivations of everything that were happening, but the story is well written. Nice yes. characters, nice, interesting prose. Uh, it was, as you, as you said, good tension, believable tension. Uh, I didn't really find a lot to fault with it apart from the backstory of the characters which which would have been a bit more interesting but i get the subtlety at the time i think that was a hit for contemporary readers you know with the spanish civil war very much backdropping a lot of what's happening in europe and yes. i went i went four overall for the investigation so did I. oh did I was you okay as well yeah. well for the um for the perpetrator l yeah and the kind of minor villains I, yeah i mean they're, they're kind of one-dimensional i think that there's more there's more dimension to the to the manageress and to k than there is to l but l is the big bad um he's interesting you you kind of root against him. him yeah you would you do want more of him, and you want a little bit more explanation for for why and and how it is that he manipulates the way he does but i, I mean he's just the more ambitious negative villain it's that side of the war that's the wrong side and that's the one that we have to we have to go against and cheer for so he was okay passable i went for a three i did too Oh, wow. Okay. Environment. I enjoyed the environment of the book, particularly where it lingered in places like the London Guest House and Flat. Bendich Village. I really like that stuff. There's lots of atmosphere through the weather. That sort of pathetic fallacy may be a little too heavy handed, though, in places <laughs> like I was saying, how much fog is too much fog. And but but if if we kind of hedge on the side of caution and we give we give credit to the fact that this is an earlier thriller, then it's okay to stick in the fog. You know, that that's great. Yeah, I think how he frames mm-hmm. the scenes, I guess you could say in a cinematic sense. Yes, like that snow the, globe uh, sense, yeah. yeah. The, the snow globe sense, as mm-hmm. you said. But also, like, talk just how he frames scenes, like, for example, at the, uh, what was the name of, of the hotel that Curry owns? What's it called? Um, the Red Lion. No, the Red, Red Lion. Not the Red no, Lion. No, 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 no. That's in the, the, uh, the, the one in Dover. The one in Dover, yeah, just outside of Dover. I'm not sure the inn that they end up pulling into. Is it named? Yes, I believe it is. I forget the name of it now. The High Galleon or something like that. Okay, the, sure. The, right. the, the Spanish Galleon, I believe. Okay. Anyways, but regardless, like how he frames scenes, like in the in like at, at the inn or at the pub houses, uh-huh. uh, the whole like Entrenatinos Center, uh, the whole like the embassy, mm-hmm. uh, just the streets of London as he describes it, the, the boarding house, you know, where Elsie is killed, where D stays, and. I found that he painted a picture of London that that was mm, very yeah. that I could I could visualize very well. And, and to me, I think that made it one of the stronger parts of the of the of the novel. Sure. So yeah. I, I I definitely I really I really like uh, how he describes backgrounds, how he describes locations, how he establishes mood in those locations. Even though, as you said, it could be a little bit ham-fisted, but he does do it well, in my opinion. And again, he's going for a more flourishy literary bent on it. So yeah, you got to kind yeah. of take that with a grain of salt in terms of how ham-fisted he is. So to me, I think that was one of the highest gradings for this story. So I give uh, the environs a four. Okay. Well, I went four as well for the reasons I've already stated. And I would Perfect. just say that there's a consistency in the bleakness of, of the weather as it as it kind of pervades through the story. There is a consistency to that sort of pre-war Britain feeling that something's going to change here. You know, whether Green, obviously he would have been aware of it in 1938-39 when he's writing this, 1939. But yeah, like, there, uh, there are like, those sort of tremble, tremors and premonitions uh, that, that are interesting. Coming. Yeah, He knew something was coming. And you can feel that in the story. I think uh, even without the advantage of, of hindsight, I think you can feel that in the in the writing. So yeah, it's not the I, I enjoyed that. Before the storm, it's the fog before the storm, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. The fog before the blitz. Well, you know, Josh, it is a relatively short book, and in a relatively short book, 
I think this does well with the secondary players. I mean, Captain Curry is representative of the class and the type of man that, that he is. Uh, Marie, the housekeeper, is an interesting character. Forbes is an interesting character. Mr. K is an interesting kind of character. Mucker, yeah. Muckerjee, Bellows, these are interesting figures that he plants in the story, uh, in this sort of back and, and he, forth. And he does something with you that you don't expect either. Like, mm-hmm. to yeah. me, I thought that they were going to make Bellows sort of part of the whole conspiracy, but so I don't I think he really minutes, was. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I, I don't believe that Bellows knew anything that was going on in the Internaciono Center. I don't think he understood at all what, but he, but, what his business was being used for. Yeah. And I think Kay was trying to throw D off saying, you know, like, oh, well, they're, they're dangerous too, both him and uh, Miss mm-hmm. Carpenter. But mm-hmm. really, they weren't. They were just kind of just like oblivious uh, idealists yeah. who were basically happy to help other people and, and you know, in, in their own kind of, as I, as, as I said, liberals with the hearts on their sleeves, you know, uh, kind of way. But they were also clueless as to what was going on around them. Yeah. And I, I also liked Elsa. I thought she was a cool character, even though she was, you know, pretty single dimensioned. I did like her as as sort of that, uh, just just to expose a little bit more of Dee's character. We get to see that that sympathetic play and yes. interplay between them, the way she takes the papers and how he wants to kind of credit her and thank her. I mean, I believe the the way Green describes it is that you know she responded to him as if as if a single swallow was a whole summer. You know, she's clearly not a character who who is used to having nice things around her and honest people and genuine kind of thank yous. You know, she doesn't get that often. And so I thought that all of that was was neat, as well as even Clara, you know, like the prostitute who she yes. was going to go work for. I thought that when she came in to look at the body, that was a nice scene. There's really interesting secondary characters here, much like some yes. of the, like the better home stories we've seen. There are some really neat characters that could have been in another 60 or 70 pages, really turned into something even more special than what they were in this, in this sort of spy versus spy tale. So I, I think that that was one of the strengths of the book, and I went 4.5 for the secondary cast. Okay, cool. I went with a 4. Uh, that's, yep. I, I thought that was just I, you know, my whole feel of, every, of everyone. 4.5 is a very, I don't think is a, uh, I wouldn't say that's generous. I think that's a very good review, and I think I could have fell between 4 and 4.5, four and but I'll stay with my 4. That's a solid grade. For it me sure is, yeah. Of, of course terms, it is. In terms how I, you know, Things so I might have been gushing a bit there because they were so different and for me more interesting than the principles. I think I think I maybe went that extra half mark above because I felt that when I was in and around these secondary characters, even even if you extended it out to like Doctor Wee, you know, uh, who, who was the um, was he the Korean I believe or the the Chinese uh, the Chinese I mean, he was, man? He was yeah. From, yeah, he was Chinese man. And was there a guy from Siam too? Like yeah, like a, that's like right. From Thailand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. wherever he was from, um, and I blame Green for that. Not me. <laughs> Forget <laughs> it. Uh, I, I even found that that was interesting, you know, in the way that kind of colored cut things. So the supporting cast, for me at least, was a little more interesting than Rose and D. But uh, hey, that's that's just me. Um, and particularly that four that four point five sticks if we consider Forbes as part of that secondary cast. But I guess it all depends on how you read the story. But yeah, I mean, in summation, I'm eighteen point five. Uh, for the confidential agent and Josh, you are nineteen, so there's not much in it, really, not much in it at all. Yeah, so we we sort of fell um, into the same category. And despite yeah. that, though, we did have some interesting perspectives. Uh, we we shared different perspectives on certain things, but in the end, we were all kind of agreeing to all of the elements. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed sure. it. And and you know what? As a as a palate cleanser, I should say, as a, as a literary palate cleanser between our servings of uh, Philip Marlowe adventures i enjoyed this it was nice to it was nice to uh, have this chat and to, to get your thoughts on it 
How yeah, about you? What, what do you think? Your final thoughts on this? I, I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. I think it's a good story, and it's made me yes. want to read more of Graham Greene's work. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that assessment. Um, I really enjoyed the story. Uh, it was a vi- um, as I said, I had to find a moment to really get immersed into the world, and I was able to do that. And I, I was, I found it very um, suspenseful. I mm-hmm. love the tension in it. Uh, it was not predictable in, in in most ways that I expected it would be. So I found the ending with Rose at the end. I still have my issues with that. It kind of came out of nowhere for me. I didn't really see that part mm-hmm. coming, to mm-hmm. be honest. I thought it was going to be kind of like almost like a Casino Royale like ending, where just kind of just like. Uh, yeah. it, it would almost be like anticlimactic in a way, mm-hmm. but it was more, you know, it went to a typical place despite, you know, what Rose was talking about when they went to the movies and stuff and how she was able to, this might have been, you know, Graham Greene, the movie critic, basically calling out the any before it happened. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because she does, she does say throughout the story, you know, I know I can't have you after, uh, and I know I'm not your wife, but I still want what I can have with you. You know, I mean, there's that, that is kind of calling it out, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is. And it kind of a foreshadows later on in his life, too, where like, you know, his uh, he left his first marriage, but of yeah. course he couldn't get a divorce because he's Catholic. But, That's right, yeah. you know, he, he would have like, you know, someone who would stay, would stay with him afterwards for a bit anyway. So uh-huh. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, overall, though, I really enjoyed the story. I recommend good. it heartily. I had a good time with it and I'm glad you recommended it. And despite, you know, it was a small window to get into the story. And I think we, we did a bang up job. Yeah, for sure. And I I second your points, my friend. It's a good story, and uh, I don't think you'll be too disappointed if you do like spy fiction and you haven't read this one before, then hmm, pick it up. You know, you might get mad uh, at some parts, and you don't read it if you want to see really progressive female writing or progressive immigrant writing uh, or writing about, you know, the empire, but it's it's cool. It's a good little yarn, so uh, I would probably... Well said. All right, pal. Uh, Well, I guess it's... So next up, we got the, the long goodbye... We do. Uh, Hollywood calls again for Chandler, doesn't it? It does, yes. More continuation of Chandler's time in Hollywood and going towards the end of his life as well. And then we'll take on the uh, the long goodbye. Excellent. And then uh, from there, we after that, we have playback. And Who then we got to decide yeah. <laughs> what we're going to do after that. Uh, and hopefully mm-hmm. we'll have a game plan by that time. <laughs> uh, we will always have a game plan. We got tons of ideas. Yes. There's no scarcity of ideas in this respect. It's just a matter of which idea that we choose. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening, everybody, and joining us on this journey through Graham Greene's The Confidential Agent. We'll get you back here on Light in the Pipes very soon with our sixth and penultimate Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe mystery, The Long Goodbye. And as they say in Internaziono, Bona Nuce. <laughs> bona, bona Nuce, my good man. Bona Nuce. 